This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it. Now he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of... Kim. Yet oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look. Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate, who confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13 and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends, and it wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater, and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family. And he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad, and he had no real direction in life ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James, who was influenced by Thomas. Thomas saw an uncommon joy in Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met, and never will. So thankful you are all here today as we continue asking the question, who's your one? I welcome all of you that are watching online. I read a book that had a great impact on me a couple of years ago by an author named David Platt. He pastors a large church in Mississippi. The book was titled Radical, and it was a hard call at what discipleship needs to look like today. So I was uh, eager to get his next book called Follow Me and just finished reading it. And in that book, he tells about a young man in his church named Matthew, who spent a season of his young life in a Muslim nation as a witness for Jesus. Now, some 
Muslim nations tolerate the practice of the Christian faith, and some actively persecute the practice of the Christian faith. Matthew was in the second kind of Muslim nation. And yet there the church is growing under the very real threat of persecution. How is this so? Well, Matthew says that when someone comes to faith in Christ in that country, they are immediately asked to make a list of all the people they know who need Jesus Christ. Well, it's almost everyone that they know. And then they are told to circle the names of the 10 people least likely to kill them if they witness. And starting there, faith is shared and the kingdom of God is advancing. So, the first week we gave you CDs to listen to as you equipped yourself to have better conversations with searchers. This past week we've all been praying at 10 and 2, asking God to point out who our one could be. And as God began to put people on our hearts, I doubt anyone thought, will that person kill me if I share my testimony with them? But this is a question Christians have had to ask through the ages, all the way back to the earliest days of the church. And in the very early days of the church, if you had asked Christians, who is most likely to kill you for sharing your faith, one name would have made every list. He would have been considered the least likely person alive to come to faith in Christ, and we are going to study today the amazing story of his conversion. Because the man that most likely would have killed you for sharing Christ went on to share Christ with millions through his life, his preaching, and especially his writings. And it's all because he was one by one. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to set some context. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches a sermon. And the implications of that sermon are huge. Because if you listen close, Stephen is the first to start to suggest that God's city might be more than Jerusalem. That God's place might be more than a temple. That God's people might be bigger than ethnic Jerusalem or Israel. And he gets murdered for that sermon. And one of the people totally in agreement with his murder was named Saul. In fact, Saul took it to another level. He thought, well, if it's good enough for Stephen, it's good enough for all these people in this thing called the way. So he started throwing people in jail that professed Jesus. And then he thought, well, why stop here? Why not go to other towns and do it So in Acts 9, verse 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He wasn't a sexist. He didn't care what your gender was. If you were a part of this thing called the way, as far as he was concerned, you needed to get out of the way. You belonged in jail. So as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Down to verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So you have two very reluctant characters in this story. One is reluctant to hear about Jesus and one is reluctant to share about Jesus. Let's start with character number one. You've never met anyone who was least likely candidate for conversion. Nobody had Saul on their prayer list. Nobody was thinking he might be my one. And that's one of the neat things about this story is it shows that you can be acceptable without trying to be. Because God does not write off people as quickly as we do. God knew that underneath all of that external fury was an internal struggle in Saul's life. He said later in his testimony that as on that road, Jesus asked me why I keep kicking against the goads. Now, that's a metaphor. That means, why do you keep doing what is causing you pain and distress? Because Paul, Saul, was wrestling with huge doubts even as he was on the way to Damascus. For one thing, he said the law can make you righteous and yet no one more devoted to the law, more zealous to the law than Saul could keep it. He knew that about himself. As much as he wanted, he could not make himself righteous by perfect obedience to the law. And then there's all these miracles of Jesus, and he didn't know what to do with them. What box do you put them in? Because there were too many testimonies, too many eyewitnesses, even the religious leaders all admitted this guy did signs and wonders. And then there were the people that were part of this movement. They were the kind of people Saul wanted to be. They were good. They were noble. They helped the poor. They took care of the sick and the elderly. Why, he even heard Stephen forgive his murderers before he died. But there was one thing he couldn't deal with. Jesus was dead. Not just dead, he had been crucified. And the Old Testament says if you die on a tree, that's because you're cursed of God. And he had no room in his faith for a cursed and dead Messiah. So he just ignores his doubts. He closes his mind. And he says, I'm going to make my life's mission the eradication of this plague 
called the way. In other words, and this is important, he is doing nothing to make himself more acceptable to Christ. Now, why is that important? Because it illustrates a very critical truth about salvation. From start to finish, it is God who saves. You see, I hear people say, I found God. No, you didn't, because God wasn't lost. You were lost. And God found you. Or they will say, I just decided to invite Jesus into my heart. You didn't give the invitation. Jesus gave the invitation. It flowed out of the goodness of his heart to invite you to be his disciple and you accept it. The point I'm trying to make is that we don't get God's attention because we're good. But God gets our attention because he's good. And it makes a big difference if you believe that. Because if you believe salvation is God's job and he's about it, then you might be more open to witnessing to that person you have been closed to. And they might be more open to receiving your testimony than you realize. Because God has been at work. People get saved because Christ is trying to reach them. More than they're trying to reach Christ. Because a lot of the times, they're not even trying when Christ comes into their life. It's Christ who's trying to reach them. And often, he's trying more than his disciples are. Because not only was Saul reluctant to accept Christ, Ananias was reluctant to share him. He was available without wanting to be. Now, I love this guy. One thing I love about Ananias, he must have had a really powerful and intimate relationship with the Lord. Because he hears his name called Ananias, and immediately he just says, yes, Lord. See, here's the thing. You really love somebody if you say yes to them before they tell you what they want you to do. And that's what he does. Yes, Lord. Got a job for you. Yes, Lord. I need you to go across town. Yes, Lord. I need you to find Straight Street. Know that street. Yes, Lord. Need you to find the house of Judas. Know him. Good dude. Yes, Lord. Need you to meet a man from Tarsus. Okay, Tarsus. Yes, Lord. His name is Saul. Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. Let me see if I got that. Across town, straight street, house of Judas, man from Tarsus, Saul. Man from Tarsus, Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Lord. And he springs a leak in his courage tank and decides... I better tell the Lord some things about him that he hadn't heard yet. (laughs) Lord, I've heard many bad reports about this guy. Do you have any idea how many followers on Twitter I will lose if I show up at his house? (laughs) And so he thinks I need to tell the Lord some things about Saul's past. 
And I love this. Jesus says, I need to tell Ananias some things about Saul's future. He says, Ananias, I know all about, I know all about Saul. But here's what you don't know. You don't know I've chosen him. You don't know I'm about to explode the gospel into the Gentile world. And I need somebody who can suffer when it happens. You don't know that he's my man. Now go. And he did. And I'm not sure Jesus' words removed all of his fears. But it inspired him to obey in spite of his fears. Because I really think that's the measure of obedience. It's not when I'm willing to do what I already want to do. But it's when I'm willing to do what my flesh doesn't want to do. A lot of God's best soldiers in the Bible were drafted. They didn't want the assignment. But when they got their orders, they obeyed. Because love trumps fear. And if you have an intimate relationship with Jesus, you're going to wind up going places you would not go on your own. Because we're saved to be sent. We're available for his next assignment. We're listening to that next time when we can say, yes, Lord. Because I want you to understand something about Christianity. It is a converting religion. It's not just a set of principles that will give you a happier life. It's not just a group of teachings that will produce a more moral society. It is a truth built on historical events that if they really happened, matter to anyone and need to be told to everyone. Even the one that no one thinks about. Because even that one is someone to Jesus. And he goes after them. In fact, great story of someone in our church baptized just a few weeks ago. That can understand what I'm saying. I want you to listen to this testimony. I was born into a Christian Catholic family in which all my family are believers, but I was not. My dad passed away in uh, December a couple of years ago. At one time, I was driving home from work and I just felt the presence of my dad in my truck. and. This was a problem in my head because I always believed when you died, you're dead, that's it. So how could I feel the presence of my dad in my truck? Months thereafter that, I had uh, went to bed one evening and when I woke up, I heard the sound of music in my house. So I got up and looked throughout the house for where the music was coming, I could not find it. So I did go back to bed, but I woke up several times during the night hearing this same music. The music was the song, Come All Ye Faithful. That next morning, I 
talked to my wife about it and she asked me what did I think that was. I really didn't want to get much into it because I, I, I'm still standing strong that this really isn't true. And this is something in my head, a fan or something. But I went to work and that evening I got home and my wife said, you've got mail. So I went and looked on our bar and it was a, a little card and it was a story on this card that was mailed to me about this man. I don't know who the person was, but as you're reading the story, you can tell that whatever the story is, this guy is not getting what's being told to him. And, and I'm thinking, you're dumb. You can't figure this out. And then when I get to the bottom of the story, it says, are you listening? Basically, my head discounted it. I'm not sure what I told my wife, but I pretty much discounted it. The next day, my wife told me I had mail. I looked at it. It was a story again. And at the bottom, it said, are you listening? And that really kind of struck a nerve because this is the second time. And the very next day, I got another one in the mail. And again, it said, are you listening? And I sat down with my wife. And she asked me what I thought about this. And I told her, I think I need to go to church. When I got baptized, when um, um, David put me under the water, it on, honestly felt like it was in slow motion. When I came out of the water, I was uh, very emotional, um, very happy and excited. I've been married to the same woman for 31 years, and she will tell you I am a different person. My children, it's kind of like they don't have to walk on eggshells when they're around me. Uh, my sister and brother-in-law who go to this church are really excited that, that I have made this step. And the funny thing is I, I didn't do it for any gain. I did it because I this came to me. I wasn't looking for this. I definitely wasn't looking for this. It just came. And as quirky as it sounds, God came to me. And I don't know why I missed it for all my life. I don't know how I've missed this. But I, I don't want to miss it now. See, I don't know what you do with a story like that or how it hits you, it makes me want to jump up and spike my Bible. Because here's what I believe. I, I just believe we should expect Saul's stories all over the place. We should expect God in ways seen and unseen and unexplainable to show up in people's lives who aren't even trying to find him, who aren't even looking for him, but are being looked for by him. Here, here's some things you can expect if you want to join Jesus on his mission. Number one, Jesus will chase every one. We talk a lot about the perseverance of the saints. We don't talk enough about the perseverance of God. God is relentless in the pursuit of his lost children. I remember a story my dear friend Milton Jones told me a few years ago. Milton for years preached in Seattle, Washington. And he had a sermon he's preached here before called Put in a Good Word for Jesus. And he had preached that sermon. And there was a visiting preacher, an older man named Stanley Ship, that got convicted by that sermon and said, I'm going to be more intentional about putting in a good word for Jesus. 
So from there, he went to Breckenridge, Colorado on a ski vacation. He said, I'm going to ski single the whole trip so that someone I don't know has to get on the lift with me and I've got them for 10 minutes and I can put in a good word for Jesus. So one of the girls he meets on the lift is down from Seattle. He says, Milton Jones, remember that name, Milton Jones. When you get to Seattle, find Milton Jones. He's got something important to tell you. She thinks he's just a nut, forgets all about it. She goes back home later. She's at work one day and a coworker says to her, would you like to come to a Bible study? I don't want to go to a Bible study. Blows it off. Next week, she's on a bus going home after work. Meets a young man across the aisle. As they talk, he says, I'm going to a Bible study. Do you want to come? She doesn't know why. She just says, okay. And she shows up and her coworker who had invited her the week before is at that Bible study. And this young man's teaching the Bible study. He seemed like a nice fellow. What's his name? Milton Jones. Milton Jones. So she goes up and says, now, don't think I'm crazy. Do you know a very old man named Stanley that skis? Because he says, you have something I need to hear. And Milton says, I sure do. And what followed was a lunch and a study and a new Christ follower was made. Man on a ski lift, an office worker, a guy on a bus. Milton just happened to be at that first study. Do you see how hard God is working to bring people to faith? Jesus will chase everyone. He said in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. He hasn't stopped doing that. He's still appearing. He's still shaking the paradigms of people who thought he was dead, who think the whole thing is nonsense, until the risen Christ shows up and rattles their cage. We must expect the presence of Jesus to be making his resurrection credible to people. And we must expect that same resurrection power is available to people because Jesus can change anyone. And so he puts Ananias deliberately into a situation where Ananias has to decide how much he believes the gospel. And he does the same thing to you. Jesus puts people in your life as a test to discern whether or not you really believe this stuff or not. Is it too hard for Jesus to redirect anybody toward his glory? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. Who wrote those words? Saul become Paul wrote those words. Because it's not just a doctrine to him, it is life experience. Jesus changed his life. He never saw who he was so clearly than on the day he was blinded by the glory of Christ. And suddenly it made sense that all his life he made the same mistake everyone else makes. I'm going to become the person I want to be from the outside in. And so we think more legislation or better education or even rehabilitation is going to fix us. 
And what the Bible says we need is crucifixion. That old life just needs to get buried and a new life needs to emerge that is fueled and empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 6, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we've been united with him in his death, we'll also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Paul literally went on a trip that changed his life. And some of you have been on that road. Some of you were that person that no one ever thought would be in a church. I had a real thrill a couple of weeks ago to be reunited with a friend of mine named Chester. When I preached in Abilene, I helped Chester come to faith in Christ. Let me tell you about Chester. He was the meanest man I've ever personally known. He worked for a loan shark. He was the guy that if you didn't pay the loan shark back in time was sent to break your arm. He was good at what he did. When he tried to enter the army, they had five blanks list your felonies. He just said, see Abilene Police Department. See Odessa Police Department. See Midland Police Department. And today that man is a completely new person. Married, raised, grown boys that love the Lord, leader in the church. And no one would have had Chester. On the list of people that might follow Jesus. And some of you get that. Because some of you, there was a time in your life when no one would believe that you are who you are today. In fact, hold up your hand if you're one of those people. Look at that. Look at that. Jesus can change Anyone, even that person you wrote off, even you, you were one by one because Jesus must choose some one. Saul had a vision, but he still needed a visit. Did you notice that? Jesus did not tell him what to do to be saved. He told him that someone was going to tell him what to do. This is how Jesus does it. This is how Jesus reaches the world. He shows up, he rattles the cage, he changes the paradigm, and then he sends one of his ones on assignment to someone else to tell them what to do. And so you and I have got to stay ready to say, yes, Lord. And when you get that assignment, when that name comes across your spirit, when you feel that prompting from God, don't you put it in the someday file. You know, someday, Lord, when I get past tax season. Someday when we get this wedding business through with. Someday when 
you know, the kids get out of school. Someday when we get moved. Jesus didn't call you because you've got nothing better to do. He called you because there's nothing better you can do than represent him to someone who needs him. Because God needs living examples of the gospel. Some people, they just can't hear the gospel until they see the gospel in flesh and blood. And that's why Jesus needs you. That's why the next two verses are so important. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And my two favorite words in those verses are these. Brother Saul. This is the guy that didn't want the job. This is the guy who did not have the man on his list of people to pray for. Brother Saul. You see, Jesus changed Two people that day. And the grace that Ananias shared with Saul was the grace that Paul would share with the world. In our generation... Probably few people have impacted more lives for Christ than Max Lakato. One of his recent books, Outlive Your Life, has a chapter on Ananias. And I want to read a short section from that chapter. My favorite Ananias-type story involves a couple of college roommates. The Ananias of the pair was a tolerant soul. He tolerated his friend's late-night drunkenness. Midnight throw-ups, all-day sleep-ins. He didn't complain when his friend disappeared for the weekend or smoked cigarettes in the car. He could have requested a roommate who went to church more or cursed less or cared about something other than impressing girls. But he hung with his personal soul, seeming to think that something good could happen if this guy could pull his life together. So he kept cleaning up the mess, inviting his roommate to church, And covering his back. I don't remember a bright light or a loud voice. I've never traveled a desert road to Damascus. But I distinctly remember Jesus knocking me off my perch and flipping on the light. It took four semesters. But Steve's example and Jesus' message finally got through. So if this book lifts your spirit, you might thank God for my Ananias, Steve Green, even more 
you might listen to that voice in your heart and look on your map for a street called Straight. So, who's your one? Because you're either Saul and you need to come to Christ, or you're Ananias and you need to help Saul find him. There's a card around you, it should be on the chair in front of you, or if not, look or chair behind you, ask someone to hand you, but I'd like everyone to get one of these cards. On one side it says, who's your one? For the last week we've been praying every day at 10 and 2 that God would give us an answer. On this side there's a blank, and I would like you to write your one's name on that blank. Just first name and first letter of the last name is all I want. But I'd like you to write those down, please. And in a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to come, and around the room we have baskets all over the place. And I'm going to ask you, as we sing a song of worship, to put your card in the basket. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to collect those cards, and I'll make you a promise. I'm going to pray over every card, not over the basket. I'm going to pray over every single card. And some other church leaders are too. And we're going to create on every campus this model that where we can hang these cards And as someone comes to faith, we're going to change the color and we're going to be able to watch and track as we partner with God in the mission dearest to his heart, the pursuit and the salvation of his lost children. So could I ask you now to stand? And as we sing this next song, you have two ways you can respond. If you're Ananias, I want you to take your card while we sing and put it in a basket and if you're Saul I want you to come down to the front would a few of the ministers come down and just stand in front of the stage please and just come see one of these people and tell them this is your day this is your time you want to be baptized because whether you're Ananias or Saul you were made and you are here to say yes Lord let's worship